1: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision?
0: Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today is going to be part two of a two-part episode about the scientific history of fire on Earth. Earth... As we learned in our last episode, probably, as far as we know, the only place in the universe there is fire. Could be other places we don't know about, but here it is. Right. Yeah. Uh, there are three elements required for, for fire. You need the fuel. You
0: need the heat. You need the oxygen. The triforce of fire. The triforce of fire. Earth didn't always have it, but then the conditions uh, coalesced to where they were available, and then we had fire. Yeah. And furthermore, fire, as far as we can tell, is an essential component of high technology. Yes. So you're talking about, you know, creating, you know, smelting uh, ores, uh, creating uh, circuit metal tools, doors, yeah, know, metal tools. All of this requires, the, the alchemy of these uh, creations requires fire.
1: So it is very much clear that fire is an essential part of the the technological profile of the human species on Earth. You know, beyond stone tools, fire is how we get stuff done.
0: Yeah. But there are lots of... I mean, of it a- has symbolic power, too. I mean, we get yeah. into the whole idea of promoting uh, fire, like it's this thing that gods brought us. It is the power, a power that is from beyond us, yeah. that then fills us up. We talk about the, the 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 fire and the spark of human existence, of the soul, of compassion. Uh, all of these uh, these complex ideas are, are are wound up in this notion of
1: fire. Yeah, and so the first thing I think we should talk about today is this this concept of the divine spark not so much in the theological sense but in the literal sense like what what does the human brain look like on fire what what is the fire drug done for us <laughs> And I think it's been long recognized that the control mastery over fire is one of the essential ingredients in the human animal as it exists today. One of the, the things that really makes us stand apart um, alongside language. Right. If you had to pick just two things that really make humans different than all the other animals. Yeah. Give me fire and give me some words to talk about fire with. Right. To, to say while we're setting you on fire. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but even, and this idea goes back a long way. So Charles Darwin wrote in The Descent of Man in 1871, quote, speaking of humankind, quote, he has discovered the art of making fire by which hard and stringy roots can be rendered digestible and poisonous roots or herbs innocuous. This discovery of fire, probably the greatest ever made by man, accepting language, dates from before the dawn of history. I think we can all agree on that, right? Yeah. Fire comes before history, but exactly how long before history? And one thing you might be surprised to learn is that this is not a settled question. Right, exactly. The, when fire emerges in human history is still up for debate.
0: Yeah, the the predictions vary from a brown you know, from a mere forty thousand years ago to four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, or even in the in the very extreme cases, one point six million.
1: Yeah, and so they're all over the map. I, I looked at one paper uh, by a J.A.J. Gowlett, who is a anthropologist and archaeologist, called "The Discovery of Fire by Humans: A Long and Con." Devoluted Process in Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B from 2016, and he looks over a lot of the evidence and says, so... Much archaeological investigation into the emergence of fire has been very focused on the search for hearths. Right, this is this is mm-hmm. the big thing you want to find as evidence of uh, of uh, hominins using fire is these fireplaces, hearths, a place where you'd put all your fuel together and you'd burn it. Yeah, uh, evidence for hearths seems to appear around zero point seven to zero point four million years ago, or I guess we could just say four hundred thousand to seven hundred thousand years ago. But that's not necessarily the earliest emergence of fire use among humans. That's just when we start finding these fireplaces. In fact, evidence of burning, Gallat says, uh, appears at archaeological sites starting around 1.5 million years ago. But it's, it's kind of difficult because just using fire doesn't necessarily always leave good evidence that can be found, you know, more than a million years later. So you really have to be on the lookout for things that are difficult to find, and they might not always leave a trace at all.
0: Yeah, like as with a lot of things in the fossil record and the archaeological record, it's kind of a a crapshoot as to whether it's actually going to be
1: preserved, and then if it's preserved, it's going to be discovered. Right. But so Gowlett says that, you know, one way to think about it might be that it's not just that we had fire and then we didn't, but there's sort of a three-stage process for the human acquisition of fire. And uh, so Gallet says, first, what about fire foraging? So fire foraging is uh, is an interesting first step in the acquisition of fire because it doesn't require the control of fire, just an attraction to it. So what would you have in mind if you, you hear the words fire foraging? You're going around looking for fire not exactly you're or you might be following fire around but mm-hmm. instead you go to a place where a wildfire has burned and then you gain the chance for a bonus of free resources uh, i kind of think about it how like uh, if you're ever in a video game like legend of zelda uh-huh. and you go around and you like burn a bunch of bushes or uh-huh. something and then under the bushes there might be some rupees or some goodies or something to find there this is kind of what that is like so you go to a place where wildfire is burning and there might be bird eggs or rodents or lizards or other small animals exposed that you can eat. And it might also render these, uh, so it renders these resources more visible, obviously, because it eliminates cover, easier to obtain, and possibly also more digestible by accidental cooking.
0: So there's a reason that early humans and, and hominids uh, would have been drawn to a blaze. They would have seen the smoke on the horizon, realized there was some sort of wildfire scenario going on, and they would have sought it out. For- yeah, sources.
1: Yeah, 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 and and we can talk about some modern analogies to how these these creatures may have uh, felt about fire by looking at some uh, some modern primates today. But we'll talk about that later in the episode. And just for analogies in non-human animals in nature, there are other animals that do this. There are, for example, birds that are known as fire followers. Mm-hmm. You know, fire foraging among avians makes it seem like it could easily have been done by uh, hominins a long time ago too. But then, uh, so Gowlett also says, you know, you got a couple of stages after fire foraging. You've got, he says, quote, social slash domestic hearth fire for protection and cooking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: OK, so you have a fire that you can gather around. There's warmth, there's light, and there is there's heat for cooking food. And then third, finally, fires used as tools in the technological processes like firing pottery or making metal tools. Or, uh, things like that, or creating, uh, you know, uh, uh adhesives on things that take fire to make. But I think that thing about fire foraging is an interesting first step because it sort of shows you how you could maybe bridge the gap between a primate species that doesn't understand anything about fire and one that starts to use fire. You know, you don't have to go just straight from being afraid of fire to using it technologically. You sort of have this bridge, right, a behavioral bridge from one to the other.
0: Yeah, one is tempted to make uh, an analogy to the the taming of a wild animal. Mm-hmm. At first, you you know you know what it is. You learn you learn to be a little more comfortable around it. You know what kind of distance to give it, uh, and how much space needs to be between you and the animal. And then eventually, you get to the point where you have worked out a relationship with the animal. You have tamed it, and that's sort of what happens with fire over time. So you can imagine going from simply seeking out the fire, keeping a distance from the fire because you know that even though it uh, it, it unwraps these uh, resources for you. It uh, itself is hot and burns you. Mm-hmm. And then over time, you become comfortable enough with it to start playing with it a little bit, sticking sticks into it, and then eventually even capturing portions of it and figuring out ways to utilize it.
1: This is an interesting thing to think about. Commonly, it is very common. I bet you listening right now have this have had this experience. It is extremely common for humans to want to play with fire. Oh, Yeah. I, I know I feel this feeling like there's a there's a campfire and you just feel this urge to kind of like poke at it with a stick or something yeah. like that.
0: I had this experience with my, my son recently at a, uh, a, a fall celebration uh, with some family. Uh, they had a campfire set up and we had some uh, sticks with marshmallows mm. and, you know, instructed him on how to cook the marshmallow. But then I, I at the end of it, I said, now you can just poke the stick around in the fire because mm. I know that's really having been a little boy myself and still having that little boy within me. Uh-huh. I know that that's really what we want to do. We don't want to cook the marshmallow so much <laughs> as we want to just poke the ever loving hell out of that fire, uh-huh. you know, and watch the sparks rise up and watch uh, uh, coals collapse. And that, I mean, that's the experience.
1: But I feel like this is something that's not just a, like a like a cognitively obtained behavior, like using an, ex, an Excel spreadsheet might be. Uh-huh. It feels instinctual, right? I yeah, mean, it yeah. certainly does to me. I think you would report if small children seem to do it without prompting. There's this this instinctual draw to play with fire. Why on earth would that be an instinct? I mean, instinct is generally something that has been selected for right. uh, by evolution. So why would evolution favor this instinct to go mess around with something that could burn you or even kill you unless there's some kind of compensating benefit. And it seems like for humans, there probably has been right because you, you compared it to taming an animal, right? We haven't just tamed an animal. We have tamed a demon, right?
0: Yeah. yeah one is, uh, yeah. One is tempted to think of, uh, the, the gin, the, yeah. the of fire that, uh, like a, a genie that one has, uh, has captured and, and, and enslaved for your own purposes. Very much like the fire demon in, uh, was, which was the Miyazaki movie uh, with the fire demon? Not Spirited Away, but How's Moving Castle.
1: Oh yeah, 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 I remember that one. Yeah, yeah I think that's it's a, a good fire demon. It's a good fire demon. Yeah, and they put him to work. But it, but it also, like a djinn, grants your wishes, right? Yeah. So let's let's take a moment to think
0: about some of the wishes that have been granted by the demon fire. Um, some of these we've touched on already, of
1: Wait, course. Wait, hold on. Do we have to phrase them in a way that they can't come back to bite us?
0: Um, no, because fire does come back to bite us. No, oh, okay. There's no avoiding that.
1: Make me a cheese sandwich.
0: <laughs> so, uh, first of all, the ability to cast light upon an uncertain, frightening, and death-filled night. This so is have, big. Yeah. I mean, think back to, I, I think of this anytime I'm around a campfire. Just think of like the primordial environment. You're huddled around this light, this heat source, and then it gives you the ability to cast light on a world that's full of dangers, Mm -hmm. human dangers, uh, as well as predators, uh, as well as just the, the the problem of, you know, tripping over a root and dying in the night and then being consumed by predators.
1: Right. Uh, one thing is without fire, you can just pretty much bet that humans would not exist at certain latitudes, right? Right. Yeah. Fire gives us the ability to
0: warm ourselves uh, in increasingly colder environments. So you're no longer forced to range south in the winter. Uh, or to stick to natural uh, refuges of uh, thermal springs that's uh, that's something that um, I remember coming up in studying saunas before like the, mm-hmm. the long history of our association with with geothermal vents is that like these were these were little um, uh, you know, redoubts of uh, of heat and civilization mm-hmm. that early people could uh, could range between Interesting, but with fire, you can create your own little redoubt of warmth anywhere you want to uh, in a in an increasingly chilly environment. Now, a big one to come back to that cheese sandwich you mentioned: the ability to externalize human digestion through the use of cooking. Like that, that's one way I like to think of of, of cooking, you know, because mm-hmm. it's more than just, oh, I put some char on this cheese and now it's, it's what's well, wonderful. Uh, and it is wonderful, but it goes far beyond that. Cooking like, makes you know, char on cheese. Is that wonderful?
1: Yeah. You you- char on steak. I don't
0: know. Well, maybe not char. Uh, you've had cheese sticks, right? You you, you know sticks. where the cheese comes off the, the grilled cheese and it kind of hardens into this little oh, crust? Oh, you know
1: what? I doubted you, but now I know, know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, you're that's, right. That's delicious. Right. Yeah. However,
0: it doesn't really break down like the core benefits of, of cooking for early man because wow. a lot of those come down to meat. Uh, cooking meat makes it uh, easier to digest. It reduces the cost of meat digestion, just coming at it from, you know, an economic uh, bioenergy uh, standpoint. It compromises the structural integrity of the tissue by gelatinizing the collagen. Cooking also cleanses foods. It destroys parasites, pathogens, and even renders many natural toxins harmless. Poisoned fruits become foods, mm-hmm. etc. Okay, on top of this, fire enables uh, the transformation of resources, such as raw ore into weapons, right. which can then be used for your hunt. Uh, fire uh, eventually fueled the Industrial Revolution. The burning of fossil fuels propelled us into the modern age, into the space age even. Uh, so if, if man looms large... Uh, in a in a grand scheme of things, it's because the demon fire stands behind him, casting his shadow across
1: the world and beyond. As Rocky Erickson would say, "Stand for the fire demon." Yeah, uh, yeah. And so, one particular aspect of uh, what you just talked about, I want to look at is cooking. Cooking as a feature of the the history and development of the human species. So there is a Harvard primatologist named uh, Richard Wrangham and also a Harvard biologist, Rachel Carmody. And they've put forward this interesting hypothesis I was reading about, about how cooking, by way of of harnessing uh, a fire, made us into the humans we are today. And so this is not considered proven. There are arguments made against it. But I think it's really interesting and worth taking a look at. So... How could cooking make us into the creatures we are today, especially from a mental point of view? Well, one thing to think about is how your body at a total state of rest is just a vampire. It is absolutely energy ravenous. And I think... (laughs) Sometimes people don't realize how much energy is burned just by being alive, just by the steady processes like circulation, digestion, and homeostasis. So I, I put together an example just to illustrate how much energy this takes comparatively. Uh, and I used a couple of calorie counters provided by the Mayo Clinic and Runner's World websites with, you know, so take this with the warning that these types of apps offer sort of general estimates, shouldn't be taken as perfect or exact. But based on this, imagine you are a 30 year old old female who is five foot six and weighs 145 pounds you burn a hun- uh, about 1750 calories a day at rest 1750 calories doing nothing if you just lie in bed and <laughs> and watch uh what would you watch all day a very low energy thing to watch on tv i
0: don't know buffy we were talking buffy. about buffy. oh buffy yeah earlier. watching buffy just Marinox? watch buffy
1: all day yeah Now, to burn that same amount of energy through exercise, uh, a 145-pound adult would have to run about 16 miles at a pace of 6 miles per hour the entire time. That's more than half of a marathon race. So – I don't know. It just doesn't seem like yeah. laying there watching Buffy all day is about the same amount of energy work as running more than half of a marathon. But it is.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like when you look at a, like business expenses and look at the, the, the sheer cost of just keeping the lights on. Yeah, and the, uh, the, the overhead. The, yeah, the overhead of a yeah. particular business. The overhead for business human is, uh, is, is, is pretty staggering.
1: Yeah. And so... What are, wh- where is all that energy going? Well, it, like we said, it powers a lot of different things. It powers circulation, digestion, respiration. But one of the most energy hungry organs in the human body, maybe the most energy hungry, I've seen different claims about that, mm-hmm. uh, is the brain. So despite being only a very small percentage of the average human body weight, I think I've seen something like 2% or so, it regularly uses around a fifth of the body's total available metabolic energy, about 20% of all the energy your body uses is going to the brain. I'll lighten up those synapses, things going back and forth. And according to one study I read from 1997, each unit of brain tissue. So that's unit by mass uses about 22 times the amount of metabolic energy that is used by the equivalent amount of muscle tissue. Being smart is very costly from an energy perspective. Yeah. And we know that all organisms live in a very tight energy economy, right? Yeah, there's not a lot, there's not room for a a lot of wasted effort or
0: even any wasted effort really when it comes to um, an organism.
1: Right. Uh, So we know now, we know that the brain needs a large uh, amount of energy in order to be powerful and formidable and intelligent like a big primate brain is. But if you go back a few decades, Scientists noticed this curious fact. So they said when you look across species with varying rates of what's called encephalization, meaning, you know, investing evolutionarily in a large, powerful brain, blowing the head up, Mm -hmm. encephalized mammals don't seem to show a corresponding increase in their basal metabolic rate. So you make a bigger brain. But you're, uh, and you're investing in this energy-hungry organ, but you're not showing greater energy needs than a similar-sized animal that doesn't invest in encephalization. So, uh, for a for a comparison, it's kind of like if you have two families that live next door to one another, and you know they both have the same income, and suddenly one of the families buys a yacht. Ah. So you're kind of thinking, huh, where did that How money How they come- afford
0: that? Yeah, what's this other uh, line of revenue that is uh, that is enabling them to make this
1: purchase? Right. So there was a big influential paper in 1995 that offered a potential solution to this, a hypothesis to explain this, and it was known as the Expensive Tissue Hypothesis. This was by uh, Leslie C. Aiello and Peter Wheeler uh, in Current Anthropology in 1995. And so what they said is one way you could pay for the brain – would be to cut investments in other, quote, expensive organs, such as the gut, right? So a powerful, costly digestive system is required if you want to get the maximum energy out of bad food, essentially. (laughs) So if you've got raw, tough, hard to digest, low quality foods, you need a big, powerful gut to get all the energy out of them. But if you could imagine an organism could convert most of its diet away from all of that junk into high-quality, high-nutrition, easy-to-digest foods, then it could cut what it invests in the gut and the digestive system and all and get, cut down that budget and invest all of those savings into the brain. Ah. So the original proponents of the expensive tissue hypothesis they were focused on meat. Their idea was that you know these hominins converted a large part of their diet from tough, hard to digest plant matter over to meat and animal products, and they could get more nutrition with less work for the digestive system.
0: I can imagine the the TV advertisement for for meat at the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Get gets, more bang for your, for your
1: bite. Get smart quick with meat. Right. It sounds like a fallout kind of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so here's where Rangham and Carmody, where their hypothesis comes in. What if instead of just upgrading to meat, what if one of the significant upgrades was to cooked food, allowing for easier digestion and a bigger brain? So uh about 1.7 million years ago or so, about the time of the emergence of Homo erectus, uh, when the modern human body plan first shows up, this is when you see human bodies that are shaped more or less like Homo sapiens are today. Cooking under this hypothesis could have entered the scene, making difficult foods, tough roots and tubers and stuff available on the open savanna into a digestible, a a real thing that you could digest and get good energy from as long as you could cook it. Now, uh, I said that this uh, hypothesis was not fully accepted everywhere, and Uh that's the case. So from what I'm reading, more research has... Uh, seriously called into question many aspects of our previous understanding of the expensive tissue hypothesis. There appears to be a period of, uh, Right now, conflicting evidence and reinterpretation, just doing a search for scientific articles published within the last four years or so. I found a bunch claiming to find evidence for the expensive tissue hypothesis within certain species or groups of animals. Others claiming not to find any evidence within certain species or groups. So as far as I can tell, this one is up in the air. Um, and with respect to the cooking hypothesis, one important piece of evidence would be that in order to sort of track within encephalization history with the the growing brains of our hominid ancestors, it would need to be supported by evidence of very early fire use in hominids. Now, earlier, what did we say was the earliest known fire use? We saw those uh, hearths, you know, 400,000, 700,000 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. We saw maybe evidence of burning going back earlier, maybe to 1.5 million years ago or something like that. But this would need to show fire use going way, way back earlier than is generally accepted. But I would also say within the realm of possibility. Maybe maybe you'd agree based on what we've read.
0: Well, I think the yeah, there are arguments on both sides that are interesting. One that uh, I ran across uh, just to base it in like a very simple study from uh, 2007 in which uh, the researchers studied the effects of cooking and also grinding the meals of a Burmese python. Mm -hmm. So they found that Just cooking the meat, and they use beef, just cooking the the beef alone, decreased the cost of digestion, absorption, and assimilation by 12.7%. Grinding it decreased it by 12.4% for a total culinary discount of
1: 23.4%. Okay, so they've externalized some of the digestion of this cow for a burmese python right and certainly you know burmese pythons tend not to cook on their
0: own but (laughs) but i think or eat cows probably right well yeah i mean you know except maybe in uh the storybooks, but uh but yeah this uh, the the interesting thing about this is that on one hand it sort of backs uh, backs up these ideas of yes there's a there was a a definite definite evolutionary advantage in cooking meat but it's in looking back at like the history of of culinary arts and culinary preparation it you, you can't really discount the the grinding the uh, the the uh, the, the dissimulation of food as well mm-hmm. like being able to break foods down into not only cooking them into forms that are more palpable and and more consumable uh but also y- just physically altering them, and uh, I can't help but think of of the use of, of fire and therefore smoke as a as a as a food preservation technique as well. Being able to smoke your food so that you have that uh, nutritional uh, power up for later, uh, perhaps in a time when uh, when they when resources are less available. So I I, I think uh, I, I think it becomes a more complex pattern as you see culinary practices evolve within. Uh, early people yeah that's that's my kind of take on it anyway
1: well i mean another thing to think about though this is uh this is probably not super scientific but just to check your own uh, reflections as long as we're talking about human nature Uh we asked this about poking fire right how often do you really just want to eat all your food raw is that a desire you have or do you feel a deep instinctual desire for cooked food
0: well not fruit I'm uh, I'm I'm I rather I have to be talked into say
1: cooking a well, pineapple. Well, fruit fruit is often the exception, right? That mm-hmm. is often the exception given to this uh, statement that humans tend to prefer cooked foods. Right, and humans, in fact, aren't the only animals that seem to prefer cooked foods. In fact, I, I found uh, one study from actually from 2015, also in Proceedings of the Royal Society B, called uh, "Cognitive Capacities for Cooking in Chimpanzees." And so one of the things they talked about in in this study is they said okay so we got chimpanzees and we found out across nine studies that chimpanzees prefer cooked food they like to cook food better than raw food mm-hmm. they also found that the chimpanzees can understand that raw food is transformed into cooked food through cooking and so they can sort of generalize this understanding in other contexts they can get the point that if i have a piece of raw food cooking can turn it into cooked food mm-hmm. Uh, They also will wait for cooked food. They'll delay gratification. If the reward is the food being cooked, they will give up raw food in order to see it transformed into cooked food and they can transport and save raw food in anticipation of future cooking. So, I, I don't know that that, that seems to uh, to go along with this sort of instinctual thing that I think we all feel and that I think has been found in other animals too that you don't just get more out of digestion when food is cooked, but you have this natural preference for it. yeah, and and
0: certainly that's that matches up with human experience. We have this primal relationship with with cooking. We want to cook our food. I mean, we, uh-huh. we have, uh, Michael Pollan in particular uh, has a number of. I mean, he's he's written uh, and and produced documentaries that uh, that touch on this time and time again. We have mm-hmm. this this kind of inborn desire to want to manipulate our foods via cooking, transform them into these other forms, mm-hmm. and when that when those Techniques when those practices leave our lives, uh, we 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 feel drawn to uh, to commune with them in other ways, such as watching cooking shows uh, all the time. That sort of thing.
1: You know, speaking of Michael Pollan, I one of the articles I read about the cooking hypothesis, Mm -hmm. and this was from a few years ago, so he might have changed his mind since then. But at the time of the article, he uh, said that he was he felt pretty convinced by the cooking hypothesis. This Mm -hmm. hypothesis that uh, cooking is sort of an evolved biological trait that coincides with greater uh, encephalization or investment in brain tissue in humans.
0: Yeah, like I said, I think there's a strong case to be made there.
1: So earlier I mentioned that paper by Gowlett about the uh, the history of acquiring fire mm-hmm. uh, by by humans, and he's the one who talked about the fire foraging bridge. And he, he mentions one way that that might play into the cooking hypothesis that I think is interesting. So I just want to read a section uh, from his work where he says, quote, the analogy with other animals might suggest that in the first instance, early hominins would go to fires simply to take advantage of any additional opportunities of gaining prey, regardless of whether the resources were cooked. For example, the fire might reveal a clutch of eggs. So much better if it has baked them. Uh, though would that technically be baked if the shell's still on? I don't know. That seems kind of gross, but uh, I've never really done that before. Maybe.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It'd be kind of like a boiled egg, I guess, right? In yeah. Yes. Yeah. I don't
1: know. I've, I've never, never
0: seen it on the the menu. Baked eggs, but
1: yeah. I've never seen it in the shell on the menu. Yeah. I don't well, know
0: except like. in a boiled egg, right? A
1: boiled yeah, egg. Yeah, but not ba- but not like over <laughs> an open flame. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Somehow
1: it seems like it would explode. I don't know why I think that.
0: Well, that's an experiment for some of our
1: listeners to uh, fill us in about. Or that's an experiment for us to do on Facebook Live right yeah. here in the office. Baked with an eggs. open fire. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so anyway, Gallup continues, quote, For encephalization, new cranial finds are altering the figures rapidly. But at the moment, it would seem that the average cranial capacity for early HOMO at 1.8 million years ago... And so that's talking, you know, close to the time of the emergence of Homo erectus is 600 to 650 cubic centimeters, which is 40 to 50 percent greater than for most apes and australopithecines, other related animals at the time. Uh, And yet this is earlier than Richard Wrangham's postulated date of one point seven million years ago for applying the cooking hypothesis. Uh, And then he concludes saying, perhaps the fire foraging is one important element and the cooking hypothesis comes into play more strongly later, but other factors operate alongside both. So this is talking about how the, these, the fire foraging and the cooking hypothesis, if they're both, you know, correct models of, uh, of the history of humanity, how they sort of could fit together. They're like a jigsaw puzzle that led to the fire I want to say the fire regime, that usually has another meaning, but Uh the fire regime within the command of human power and technology. And then the rest is history.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss what it means to get fire. Want to position yourself for career success? Master the fundamentals of business with HBX Core, a three-course online program developed by Harvard Business School faculty. Immerse yourself in real-world case studies as you dive into business analytics, economics for managers, and financial accounting. The three courses that Harvard Business School faculty determined were essential to becoming fluent in the language of business. The innovative HBX online platform was developed from the ground up to foster real-time peer-to-peer engagement and interaction. Complete the coursework on your own time while meeting regular deadlines. Network with a global cohort of peers and earn a credential from HBX and Harvard Business School after successful completion of the program. Boost your resume, grow your network and advance your career with the HBX core credential from HBX and Harvard Business School. To learn more, visit abouthbx.com slash
1: howstuffworks. All right, we're back. Now, we all know what it means to get fired, but we don't necessarily often think about what it means to get fired. Do you ever really think about this, Robert? To like, get it, like To get it, to man. get it, to sort of understand yeah. what the deal with fire is. If I were to take my dog uh-huh. up to a big bonfire, I don't think he really understands how fire works. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm not giving him enough credit, but I, I don't know what you think about that. I, I feel like the ability to sort of get fired, just basically get a sense of, okay, here's what you can expect a fire to do. Here's, you know, here, here's what you don't have to worry about. Here's what you do have to worry about in the presence of fire. That's not something animals usually t- tend to seem to understand. Yeah, I'm not convinced that my cat understands fire. <laughs> And this is often one of the distinctions made uh, between humans and other tool using animals is that humans are the only organisms on Earth that, you know, of course, know how to use and control fire. Animals are often surprisingly clever, but their reaction to fire can be sort of characterized mostly by avoidance behaviors. And if not just by avoidance behaviors, there are some animals that might approach fire to try to find prey or something. They do seem to be purely reactive, right, that they're they're just active. Acting on instinct. Uh, Most animals tend to avoid or flee fire or even the sound of fire, and it's been shown that uh, elephants become distressed and release stress hormones in response to wildfire. But some research published in 2010 by Jill Pruitts and Thomas LeDuc I thought was very interesting in this regard because they observed savanna chimpanzees, so these are chimpanzees living on the savanna lands, uh-huh. uh, Pan troglodytes verus in uh, Fongoli, Senegal, and they recorded their reactions during these two encounters with wildfires in March and April 2006. So you've got these savanna chimpanzees. They're living out on on the plains. They're in the the, the shrubland, and and a wildfire comes along. And the researchers write that during these two encounters, the chimpanzees, unlike many other animals, reacted pretty much totally calmly in the presence of fire. And they would loiter near the edge of the fire and groom themselves. They'd be, you know, a few meters away from the fire. They'd go fishing for termites. They'd eat some Saba fruit. Uh, Even as smoke from the fire was coming up to block the sunlight or maybe climbing a tree, they'd just been resting in a few minutes before. And they said that, you know, the chimps would move to stay out of the path of the fire as it traveled uh, and these brush brush fires came at the end of the dry season, so there's plenty of dry fuel all around, right. and the fires can travel, actually, rather quickly. But the chimps just didn't panic. Instead, they seemed to be totally confident in predicting the movements of the fire and thus avoiding it. Uh, and this doesn't mean they have an understanding of the chemistry of fire, but to some extent it requires that they have this kind of unspoken, rudimentary understanding of how fire works. For instance, that it requires fuel to burn, right? Mm-hmm. That if you get out of the way of uh, maybe a connecting line between the fire and some other piece of fuel, it's not going to come towards you and also uh, that its movement can be predicted by things like the direction and speed of the wind and, of course, uh, the, the location of the available fuel. So, in other words, it seemed like the chimps were conceptualizing fire. These chimpanzees were basically showing that they understand how fire works.
0: Yeah, like an, an environmental understanding of fire. So yeah. they, they knew how to give it an appropriate distance. They knew how to get out of its way, but without panic though they certainly fall short of being able to exploit it in any real way, shape, or form.
1: Right, but they might not be as far off as you would imagine. because So the researchers set up sort of three steps, they hypothesized, for mastering mm-hmm. fire. And the first is the step that they think that the chimpanzees have already mastered, right? The, the first step is the conceptualization of fire, and they characterize this as an understanding of the behavior under varying conditions that would allow one to predict fire's movement, thus permitting activity in close proximity to the fire. Then, of course, the second step is the ability to control fire, and this would involve containing it, uh, providing or depriving the fire of fuel, and the ability to put it out. And and then third, finally, would be the ability to start a fire on your own. So conceptualization, control, and then starting it yourself. Right. So if we buy into this three-step process, y- you can see that the chimps already seem to be at step one. Mm-hmm. And what it would require for them to start gaining mastery over fire is they wouldn't necessarily already know, have to know how to start a fire. I mean, that's sort of advanced, difficult knowledge. But imagine if they could just start to figure out that, hey, if I get some of this fire on a stick and wave it around, I can really scare off predators.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's the basic Mowgli scenario, right? Exactly. Scaring off the the tiger, Shere Khan, with the the burning branch.
1: But that, to me, does not actually seem all that implausible as chimp behavior. I mean, that seems basically within primate tool use capabilities. They're already
0: using tools, using sticks. Like, what's the difference between poking a stick... uh, into a log to obtain termites uh, versus sticking a stick into an active fire to obtain just a a piece of its power.
1: And they they do seem to respect its power in another interesting way. So uh, Pruitt's uh, speaking to Iowa State News about her research was describing a thing that she observed, which was a fire dance being performed by one of the males of these chimpanzees. So she says, quote, Chimps everywhere have what's called a rain dance. Jane Goodall, a famed primatologist, coined that term, and it's just a big male display to show dominance. Males display all the time for a number of different reasons, but when there's a big thunderstorm approaching, they do this really exaggerated display. It's almost like slow motion. And when I was uh, with this one party of chimps, the dominant male did the same sort of thing, but it was towards the fire. So I call it a fire dance. Huh. Uh, she also reports that she heard what seemed to to her to be a unique vocalization that was uh, made at the approaching fire that may be in some way linked to you know like a maybe a fire signal
0: okay and it's interesting too that there's this connection to with thunder that uh, a thunderstorm and uh, and a fire and the, the, like as if there there's some connection there that is Perceived ever so, however so foggily yeah. in the uh, the primate's mind,
1: these powerful, energetic forces of nature that you, you can sort of understand and be calm around, but uh, you you also have to respect their power. Huh. Uh And so there's also you, you can look this up online if you want. There's some videos of the chimps around the edge of the fire. And it's, so the fire is burning through the brush and you can see them just sort of lazing around, grooming, hanging out while this brush fire smolders a few meters away. Huh. It's pretty strange to see. But this also makes me wonder what underlies the ability of an organism to control fire. You know, so like what are the first steps? And it makes me think that the first prerequisite to an organism that's about to gain fire control or fire technology is probably just overcoming much older instinctual fire, uh, fire behaviors, which are avoidance behaviors and escape behaviors. Uh Generally, animals want to get away from fire to control fire. You have to approach it and you have to remain near it. And I, I don't know. So that seems it's like there, there's this sort of suicidal first step <laughs> on the road to the greatest uh, unleashing of technological capability that could happen for an animal on Earth.
0: Yeah. And then you have to steal a portion of it and then you have to contain it. You almost kind of have to uh, kind of a domestication of the flame. Yeah. So conceptualization, the ability to control it. Yeah. Maybe sequester it in a hearth. But then, of course, that third step is the ability to start a fire. Right. And th- and it's, it's interesting to just look at how pervasive that is, even though a lot of us would be kind of uh, thrown for a loop if we had to
1: produce it without tools or instruments. But basically, every human society can produce fire. Basically.
0: Uh, they're... Interestingly enough, there are some, and I have to say there, the, the, some of these claims are dubious. Uh, right. There's some some controversy about these. But there have been claims that you have Aboriginal people of Tasmania as well as the Sentinelese people of the Adaman Islands. This is a uh, south uh, eastern part of the Bay of Bengal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been claims that these are the only native peoples who survived into the 19th century without possessing the knowledge of fire creation and instead had to, you know, quote unquote, keep the fire burning, preserving lightning born embers, perhaps in hollowed out trees. Oh, like
1: so they had to keep it in a cage and not let it go out. Right. According yeah. to these allegations. According
0: to these allegations are that they have to we have to catch it. It's not like the Promethean idea, like Prometheus gave it, gave us this fire. Mm-hmm. He didn't tell us how to make it. So. Store it somewhere nice, like in a hollowed-out log.
1: This strikes me as one of those things that could easily be uh, one of those sort of wrong, racist, colonial descriptions.
0: Yeah, yeah because to you know, to what extent you know, there's also sort of a modern longing for like that primal existence, I think, but also yeah, the possibility for for racist attitudes of these you know these savages clearly don't have the mastery of fire; they can only find it and then carry mm-hmm. it around. Um, it would seem, based on the, the research I was looking at, you could make a, a stronger case for the uh, Sentinelese people. Uh, but it seems to remain an open question. It, it's worth noting that maintaining fire, carrying embers from one place to another, for instance, might not be such a weird thing to do in an extremely wet tropical environment that limits your access to dry combustible materials.
1: Right. So, like, if you've always got fuel available. Yeah. Um well, you might Even if you knew how to start a fire, it might always be easier to just keep one burning. So what's the point?
0: Yeah, I mean, if anyone has ever, even if you've just stayed in a cabin and maintained a, a fire in the hearth to keep warm, you mm. know, you know, it, it can be kind of a pain in the butt to start even a if, fire.
1: Even if you've got matches.
0: Even if you've got matches and lighter fluid and all the, the, the rigmarole, sometimes it's easier just to keep some portion of a fire uh-huh. hot, keep the coals warm uh, and, and active long enough to reignite it later. That doesn't mean you don't know how to make fire.
1: Right. But sometimes it's the most expedient course. Well, now that I think about it, I know that's what I do. I mean, if I were out in the wilderness, I'd always try to keep something on fire instead of uh, instead of wanting to have to restart it every time.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, I think back on the Boy Scout methods of, you know, the flint and uh, or using the little little bow method that I never could get to work or using a, you know, a crystal. I, so I,
1: I, I got to <laughs> say, I think that bow method, you're talking about the one where you get the get the, the stick and the string. Yes. And you roll it back and forth to create fire through friction with the wood on wood. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's the one. My my position is that that is a scam. That <laughs> n- nobody's ever actually done that. Uh if you've seen video of it, I think it's it's made with Hollywood magic. I think uh I don't believe in it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was, certainly it would seem like it would be easier just to keep the, the embers going uh, as opposed to doing that. But anyway, that's that's our that's our take on it anyway.
1: Maybe I'm just speaking out of bitterness from my childhood, something I tried and failed at many times. So as long as we're talking about fire in the human brain, I also did want to throw in uh, one thing that I thought was kind of interesting. It's just a metaphor. Uh, But so people are always trying to come up with physical metaphors to explain the nature of consciousness. Right. Right. You know, what is consciousness? It's like it's one of the big mysteries left out there. There are a lot of big mysteries, I guess, in science. But consciousness is one of the thorniest of them because it's inherently subjective. You're essentially saying what can be the explanation for the existence of subjectivity? Why aren't we all just uh, automata with no experience? Right. And so you got these people who would say, well we're we're panpsychists, right? And we believe that all matter is in some way conscious, at least in some really rudimentary way, that consciousness is an inherent property of objects. And then on the other hand, you've got like the physicist Max Tegmark, who has proposed that consciousness is a state of matter, like solid or liquid or gas, you know, at some point matter arranges itself into some kind of information processing state and this is like a, a new state. Of matter, uh, and then some have also proposed that consciousness, though it's it's not that it's non physical, it's based on physical reality. It's not a physical object or a physical quantity, but it's rather a process. It's more like consciousness is not the ball or the bat or the player, but the game of baseball being played. Yeah, and uh, and another way to think about it in that sense would be that consciousness could be kind of like fire. Yeah. In sense it, that, you know, fire isn't uh, so much the substance, but it is the interaction of things happening. Yeah. A chemical reaction.
0: Yeah. What is consciousness? But a slow motion explosion some <laughs> days more than others. But, but, yeah, I think that's a, that's
1: a valid point. Yeah, in the same sense that the gases and the oxygen and the fuel are not themselves fire, but they are reacting to create fire, to, to create this thing that we call fire. Maybe all the you know the cells in your brain are not consciousness, but they 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 generate this uh, this combined property, this event we think of as consciousness, and that we experience as consciousness. Just a weird thing to think about. <laughs>
0: Well, on that note, Joe, I'd like to uh, end this episode, in this this pair of episodes, uh, with a, a quote from uh, one of, one of my favorite books, and I know you uh, uh, appreciate this one as well. Cormac McCarthy's *The Road*.
1: It's also one of my favorite books. There, there's a common motif in yes. the book uh, that when I first read it, I admit I didn't fully understand what was going on when they were talking, when the characters were talking about this, but they. The the main characters are a father and a son. Mm-hmm. It takes place in a cold and dying world after the collapse of civilization and technology. But the father and the son often speak about carrying the fire. Indeed. So here's the quote, and I'll leave this uh, for everyone to contemplate.
0: You have to carry the fire. I don't know how to. Yes, you do. Is the fire real? The fire? Yes, it is. Where is it? I don't know where it is. Yes, you do. It's inside you. It always was there. I can see it. All right, everybody, if you would uh, like to get in touch with us, you can find us uh, at stufftoblowyourmind.com. You'll find uh, the podcast episodes there. You'll find the blog posts. You'll find videos. And you'll find links out to various uh, social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Tumblr, and the
1: like. And if you'd like to spread the fire to us, you can reach us by email at BlowTheMind at Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really.
0: slash compatibility.